Abolition. 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 More than 2 million people are currently in U.S. prisons, and it is estimated that up to 5% of them are serving time for crimes that they didn't commit. They didn't commit. Freedom. After more than 20 years in prison, today Ricky Kidd walked free. He was wrongly accused of a double homicide in KC, and he has fought for this freedom ever since. I've been actually walking in a free society that I should have never been taken out of in the first place. So Tonight, Kidd had his first meal outside of prison in 23 years. He sat with family members at Jack Stack Barbecue in the Crossroads. 41 Actions reporter Ariel Rothfield joining us live. Ariel, what a monumental moment for Kidd and his family tonight. It was incredible to see him walk outside for the first time as a free man. This is a day he has been waiting for for over two decades, ever since he was first put in jail. This is what dreams have made of. You watch me go to jail. You just watch me come out. Ricky Kidd, finally a free man. It's a wonderful feeling today. Uh, we dreamed for this day. I've dreamed for this day over the past 23 years, and it's finally here, and uh, it's still seeking in, along with the rain. And it's not just the rain. Today, there were also tears of joy. Kid hugging and kissing his sister for the very first time. These are your superheroes and a super happy client. With his attorneys and the people who fought for him. It took a lot of work to make that happen. Standing right by his side. It means so much, but it also is just such a hard moment to think of how much somebody lost all in one go. Neighbors heard several gunshots fired. They're looking for one or more suspects. In 1996, two people had been shot and killed. Kidd was charged and sentenced to two life sentences without parole. Even though he had told a 41 Action News reporter he had an alibi. This is how messed up my trial was. He was at the Jackson County Sheriff's Office filling out a gun permit application. Thank you. Thank you so much. Today, Kidd called that reporter as a free man. And he's not the only one grateful. Say yay! Yay! I'm going to be able to know him out here and not behind bars. His daughter, Infinity, now gets to have her dad. She was born months after he went to jail. I thought that I would go to Jackson County Jail in 1996 and walk back out with the, with the understanding that they had the wrong person. And it took 23 years and a courageous judge and an amazing team to uh, bring about this case. All we ever needed was one fair hearing to win this case, and we finally got it. As the sun set, Kid left to go home with his family. Finally, a free man, with prison now in his rearview mirror. Believe that it's possible today. I'm showing you that it's possible, even at times where it seemed impossible. Now, one of the ways Kid made it through the impossible, he tells me he would write and that would fill his time in prison. Well, he tells me he hopes to continue writing with the hopes of writing a play. Reporting live in Kansas City tonight, Ariel Rothfield, 41 Action News. Wow, so much emotion jam-packed in this day. Ariel, thank you.
about the day Ricky Kidd was freed after being wrongfully convicted of a Kansas City double murder he never committed. That was followed by Bob Marley's redemption song. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly syndicated online radio program with specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard, 6 Central, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archived podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org. My name is Max Parpis. I'm joined by my co-host, Yusuf Hassan. Peace, Yusuf. Peace and blessings be upon you, Max, and upon our entire listening audience. I mean, last week we aired 
seeking asylum from America, the Kyle Canty story, with guest co-host for the evening, asylum seeker Kyle Canty himself. This week, we're part of the Exoneration Nation featuring Ricky Kidd. Ricky was our guest at the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center in Sumter, South Carolina this week. We also visited the African American History Monument at the Capitol State Building in Columbia, South Carolina. Tonight, we'll air that event in its entirety as Ricky Kidd embraced slavery abolition during his Freedom Lab 2020 tour, which celebrates his one-year anniversary of walking out of those cages. We've got some news to re- good news to report also, but of course, first, let's hear from Brother Yusuf. How's your week been, man? I've had a great week, Max. You know, a lot of things happened this week, a lot of positive things happening towards uh, the justice through code at Columbia University, where we're going through the application process, reviewing applications and doing interviews for upcoming cohort for those formerly incarcerated who will be coming into the program, learning code, and actually launching their careers in the technology industry. Also, we have even more greater news. Next week, our guests will be Dennis Sebo from Amend the 13th, New Jersey, and Kamal Waset, lead organizer of the Abolish Slavery National Network, which officially launches August 28th. We also have the website that's now available at Abolition, Abolish Slavery U.S. It's actually called AbolishSlavery.us. So that's the great news for this week. Well, you just let the cat out of the bag, brother. We wasn't supposed to tell people about that website until after next week, the 28th, remember? So if you do end up going to that website, remember, it's a work in progress. We're still doing some tweaks on it and getting it together. Uh, but it does officially launch on the 28th, uh, and there will be a uh, professionally done video uh, promoting the event, uh, either going with the release of the website or immediately afterwards. Uh, also, I have to make an admission. You know, we did the interview with Ricky Kidd, but our recording equipment sucks. And it, I just didn't feel that it was professional enough for us to be able to air what we did at the Abolitionist Center. So we're going to have to do a fundraiser in order to get the equipment we need in order to uh, do the best that we possibly can. So the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center needs help. And now that we have our 501c3 nonprofit status, we can ask you for a tax-deductible donation. We found out the hard way that our video recording equipment is simply not good enough for our needs. So we're trying to raise $2,000 to get the necessary equipment. If you'd like to help us, you can send a donation via PayPal to abolitioncenter at gmail.com. That's abolitioncenter at gmail.com. Or you can send checks and money orders to PCAC 1163 Furman Drive, that's F-U-R-M-A-N Drive, Sumter, South Carolina, 29154. Make uh, it payable to our CFO, Laura Saha, that's S-A-H-A, Laura Saha. This week, we'll be opening a bank account exclusively for the PCAC. You know, we, we get it done one step at a time, Yusuf. We got our 501c3 status. We got our building mm-hmm. up and running, and now we're going to open up our account so we can start getting things done. And as you just heard from Yusuf, for both him and myself and everybody involved in this venture, 
It doesn't end when the show goes off. We keep doing the work throughout the week. This is definitely Absolutely. a uh, lifelong venture. Yusuf? Yeah, absolutely, Max. Uh, you you said everything uh, in the right manner that we don't stop when the when we go off the air when we sign off every week. You know, this is really the culmination of the previous week, and then we have a whole another week worth of work going into it. So it's really great, and the support is definitely needed. You know, so. Those that are down with this mission, you know, here's an opportunity. When you say, hey, what can we do to help? Well, here's an opportunity right here, something where you can help. Absolutely, brother. And I I have a feeling that those who see and hear and follow our work uh, know that we wouldn't ask if we didn't need it. And uh, they will chip in, (laughs) no doubt about that. And we appreciate the help. We definitely appreciate the help as we're growing because that's what we're doing. We're growing. And this movement is growing right along with us. Uh, I'm very proud of the accomplishments that we have uh, gained since we went on air back in March, uh, March 15th. Actually, it was March March 13th. March 13th was our preliminary program where we tested, you know, (laughs) and the 15th we launched. Right, exactly. And and since then, we have been kicking behind and taking names. (laughs) (laughs) It was a heck of an experience having Ricky Kidd at, as our first guest at the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center. Uh, you were there, of course, uh, through the uh, uh, power of the internet. So we had a big old screen of you there, and all of us sat down, and we had a candid conversation about so many things. One of the things that stood out for me is Ricky Kidd saying that his inspiration while he was inside and after he got out was Harriet Tubman that he associates with Harriet Tubman more than any other abolitionist. And I can understand why that brother came out those doors running, which you just heard at the beginning of the program of him getting out. He didn't stop to, you know, spend time with his family and go on vacation and visit the world. No, he started advocating immediately for those who were still behind bars that were innocent. Yusuf. And that's the same thing that I've noticed, you know, that many times people who are exonerated and many who are formerly incarcerated, you know, for whatever reason, they actually get involved in the mission when they come home. A lot of times you would think, okay, you're home now, you know, just put that behind you and move on with your life. But after you've experienced it firsthand, it's just kind of hard to just push it to the back of your mind. So, I can definitely see how he says, you know, he equates it to Harriet Tubman because, you know, once she was able to escape, she says, there's no way I can just let that go. I have to go back and get my people. So we see the exonerated five and we see many others that actually go back and get involved. So I'm glad that that's the path that he's taken as opposed to just fading off into the sunset. Right. And I bet there was a lot of times where he was, while he was inside with the other brothers and they knew that he had a very good chance of getting out. And he said, you know, I'm not going to forget you. I'm going to make sure that I bring attention to this plight. And he's done that, you know, uh, in the past years, since he has been a free man, that's exactly what he's been doing. Uh, He's gotten a lot of attention for the false convictions, unjust convictions throughout uh, the United States and uh, the people who are still left behind. 
one of my favorite parts of our uh, time together at the PCAC was the poetry cipher. That was pretty awesome. For those that don't know, Ricky Kidd is a poet with a public book published through Prismatic Dreams Publishing. Uh, you can find him at Ricky Kid I A R, uh, and uh, check him out on Facebook there, and maybe pick up his book and show some support for him. You know, he's currently on tour, uh, going around the country during his um, Freedom Lap 2020, uh, where he's going uh, from place to place, meeting with organizers who are getting the work done. And we're proud to say that he thought we were one of those people who are getting the work done. And he's uh, putting some light on them as well as telling his story while he's going along. Yusuf? That's great. That's great, Max. You know, uh, and one thing, you know, that uh, that's unspoken is Ricky's support system. That's one thing that's missing for a lot of people that come home, you know, formerly incarcerated, that many come home to incarceration or they come home into many times the same situation that led them to becoming incarcerated to begin with. So it's great to see Ricky have a great support system around him as well, because people don't really understand the importance of that, just having that support system. And right. you take 23 years. I mean, when Ricky was, was, in, was initially incarcerated, I mean, not everyone had home computers. Not everyone had cell phones. You didn't have the digital age that we have now. So it's a nice. tremendous leap for many people coming home. And without that proper support system, they'd be completely lost. Right. Uh, 1996, a lot of those things didn't exist when he was incarcerated unjustly. And, you know, you even heard it on the news read where they said at the time of the crime, he had one of the best alibis you could ever imagine. He was literally at the police station applying for a gun license while the crime right. was Come going on. on. The mayor knew he was innocent. The prosecutor, who has since been forced to resign because of his case, knew he was innocent. Everybody knew he was innocent. And still, 23 years later, he, it took him to get out of that cage. That is amazing. His resilience is just empowering. Uh, and that is what IAR stands for. I am resilience because he is resilient. I asked him while he was here, do you hate anyone for what happened to you? Because I know, man, knowing that everybody knew I was innocent and I was in there for right. 23 years, regardless, I would have some hate in my heart. But he said, no, I don't have any hate at all in my heart. I just want to take this energy and convert it into what I'm doing now, uh, advocating for those who are still left behind. Yusuf? He's a much better man than me when it comes <laughs> to that. Yeah, because, I mean, it's hard. It's hard not to, you know, hold rancor in your heart. And I can understand why they say, you know, you have to let that go because you're not going to be able to grow as long as you hold on to it. And I think he remembered I recall him stating, you know, it's no sense in him holding that type of hatred and rancor to them because they're not going to know it. It's not going to affect them at all. It's only going to have an effect on him. So that's why he just let it go. Absolutely, man. And I understand, but 
like you just said, he's a better man than me. I would be ready to kill somebody, man. Like for real, for real. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I know everybody wants to hear what went on and what was said. Uh, So we're going to take one part of our visit where we went to the African American monument at history monument at Columbia, South Carolina, the capital of South Carolina. And it was his first time seeing this monument, which is an incredible thing to witness if you've never seen it before. And his thoughts and his ideas came out while we were there. And we watched as he literally started embracing uh, and then he finally embraced fully the abolitionist idealism that what you're dealing with is legal slavery. And uh, you can almost hear the bells ring in his voice as he's talking. So let's go ahead and play that uh, visit for everybody to hear. And uh, at the end of that recording, we'll also go right into our music break with X-Clan featuring Christian Scott with the song titled Prison. Uh, We're going to listen to this in its entirety, and we'll be right back with more commentary after that. Abolition. Abolition. Well, what do we have here? The home of the first state to succeed, the last one to come back. Some of the deepest roots of racism is right here in this particular spot. And we have a female president history right here. So, yeah, this is where the flag used to be right there in the front. See that statue standing there? Yeah. The flag was right behind it. So, every day. The, the Confederate flag yes, at the yes. capital of South Carolina. Yeah, they have snipers tar- targeting me. He had snipers on. I was the first abolitionist to speak here about slavery abolition since the 1800s. And we had a huge crowd here listening to me. And these freaking snipers had their guns aimed at me the whole time. I was literally one time away from death. All they had to get was an order or make a mistake. And that would have been it. Right here. That's where they got Moufadine for burning the American flag. Yeah, that's what Moufadine did. He didn't even burn it. We yeah. burned uh, paper effigies. Yeah. Wow. When, we, when everybody started talking about taking down the statues, this is what they said they used to take down. The African American history statue. Here. Take yeah, Ricky King here, Freedom Lot 2020. We're in Sumter, South Carolina. We're I'm in here. Columbia. Columbia, South Carolina. Columbia, South Carolina, at the state capitol, where we're talking about Max Parker's led the movement to remove the Confederate flag right over there. Give him a quick shot again. Right over there where that statue is, right behind it is where the flag stood. Uh, And he pushed a strong campaign to have that removed. Uh, The first person to speak here, the first abolitionist. abolitionist Wow. Yeah, yeah. So come with us. If you're there, whoever's there, thank you for being with us on this tour. We're here in Columbia, South Carolina with Max Parkers and Tribal Rain. We just come from the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center where we sat down and did an interview with Max uh, Tribal Star brother Yusuf and myself, we did a poetry cipher. We're going to try to grab some of that footage 
to be able to share with you. It was a powerful moment. Um, but we're here. We're here because this matters. This matters when it comes to the issue of wrongful convictions in this country. That sits on top of a bed of racism. It sits on top of a bed of uh, power. It sits on top of a bed of all the ills that the criminal justice system was designed to do. I'm often being told, I mean often being told, Ricky, stop saying that you're out trying to fix a broken justice system. It's not broken to abolitionists. It was meant to do exactly what it's doing and they believe it needs to be abolished. I do subscribe to those notions. It is intelligent. Oftentimes people think abolitionists are radical or extreme or aggressive. They actually are intelligent and aware of history and context, that which many of us tend to lack. And so we look at the symptoms of wrongful conviction, of mass incarceration, of racial profiling. We often look at the symptoms and we try to treat the symptoms. Abolitionists believe in treating what is at the core of the problem, and it is a justice system within itself as it is and as it is designed. And so I'm happy to be here today. I came on this tour to educate and inspire, but I'm being educated and inspired all in the same breath. So um, I want to talk to Max, if you will, my man. Yes. Uh, we're here at the African American Monument uh, here in the capital of Columbia, South Carolina. A few articles of interest, a couple of things that bothered me, but you'll see for yourself. Uh, you see over here, I bring my grandkids here from Cuxley's Rock so they have a connection to the nations where we came from, Ghana, Sierra Leone, Senegal, and the Congo. Uh, reminding us, you know, how we got here and why we're here today. Right, this was by Ed Dwight, the sculpture in 2001. And these rocks, Don, catch, when you get a minute, circle back over here and uh, who's that gentleman sticking out right there? Tell everybody who that is. It's Frederick Douglass. That is Frederick Douglass, everybody. Frederick Douglass, everybody know or should know or have heard to some extent about who Frederick Douglass is and what he stood for. He's an abolitionist too, right? Yes, yes. He's my mentor. Even though he's deceased, I'm still learning from him as a mentee would. Regularly, yeah. I, I don't think anybody had more of a connection to emancipation and the Thirteenth Amendment than he did uh, in this country. A lot of this was his work. The reason that you and I can talk here now, without being accused of being escaped slaves, is because of his work. Uh, his work was not done, and he said as much at the end of his life and before. Yeah. Yeah. We're still suffering the same indignity. So did he? Was he the one that echoed that the um, the, uh, uh, the emancipation was really a farce? Uh, as a matter of fact, his most important speech he ever gave, uh, he gave at the end of his career in 1888 at uh, Washington, D.C., on the anniversary, anniversary of the emancipation. His speech was entitled, I Denounce This So-Called Emancipation as a Stupendous Fraud. About 10 pages, and he broke it down in every conceivable way you can imagine why it was a fraud. And they 
some starting predictions of how things would end up if we didn't correct it then, which we did. We actually and we did end up where he right here, right here, yeah. And Bree Newsom cut the flag down that day, so she cut the flag down, and then an hour later we were right here giving Frederick Douglass's speech for the first time since 1888. So really, let me try to break it down for everyday people. So essentially, what we're talking about here is a push to end slavery, right? Yes. And so they said, okay, okay, okay. And legal slavery. Right. To end legal slavery. And they say, okay, 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 we're going to end legal slavery. We're going to let you have your freedom. But the 13th Amendment has a clause in it that says, however, if you commit a crime, we get to have you back. If you're convicted of a crime. Right. You don't even have to be guilty. You just got to be convicted. And okay. that's it. Right. And we're going to talk about that conviction yeah. as it relates to wrongful conviction right. here in a second. So go ahead and go. <laughs> but don't commit or get convicted of a crime. We're going to get you right back. So the justice system essentially was created as a trap. It's a mouse trap. Basically, you put the cheese there, the mouse is going to go there. Once the mouse gets the cheese, we got you. Now, that may not be the best analogy, but let me try to make it clear and give people context. Essentially, we're going to convict you of a crime. Right? Yes. We're going to, don't worry about it, sweetheart. We're going to convict you because we got crooked judges, we got racist cops, we got prosecutors that's overzealous and racist too. The whole system is designed to put you right back in our clutches anyway. So go free, sir. I remember, and we've seen in movies where detectives may have been uh, escorting people in and out of court, and they say, go ahead and run. Go ahead and run. Because when you do, I'm going to shoot you dead. So, bam, exactly. Walter Scott, here in South Carolina. Here in Columbia. Yeah, yeah, here in Columbia, South Carolina. Everybody remember the Walter Scott case where the guy had hopped out of his car. It was a traffic stop. And he didn't want to go back to jail for what? Child support, lack of payment for child support. Mm. He had already lost several jobs because of being incarcerated over child support that he couldn't afford. So he had been in jail twice for it and lost everything. On the third occasion, he refused. Like, I'm not going back. I'd rather run. And so he ran. And when he ran, this white cop shot him in the back eight times. Now, in the front, in the back. From a man who could barely run as it was. He yeah, had yeah. bad legs in his own yeah, way. We and saw he, he wasn't running good. Yeah. This guy could have tackled him instead he murdered him. Yeah. Uh, Michael Slater. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's not big. Yes, he got 20 years. Yeah, rarely. Rarely happens. It's a rare case. But it did happen. Yeah, that's yeah. a simulated slave ship there. Yeah. Rhode Island. Yeah. Wow. This is, uh, in, this is impressive. I really want. Uh, Don, if people can hear my voice from that far to really understand what we're talking about when we're talking about the emancipation, a proclamation, I'll be butchering words, right, in the 13th Amendment, where slavery, legal slavery, was abolished, supposedly. But if you are convicted, if you committed or convicted of a crime, we get to get you right back. And so the system was designed to frame you, to set you up. If you looked at women recklessly, white women, it was all type of miscellaneous 
black Trump. codes and dignity laws. Yes. Pig laws. Yes. All of these right. And so they it's got you right laws. back. They would send you to prison. We are not above racially profiling. We are not above setting you up. We are not above wrongfully convicting, convicting you. Yes. This is what we've been talking about on the Freedom Lab 2020, where over 115,000 men and women are believed to steal language inside the United States prison, wrongly convicted. That would not likely be the case, right? If it was not for the 13th, the 13th Amendment, kind of give us some educational value and context to that, please. Yes. Uh, in 18, just here in South Carolina, in 1862, 90% of the prisoners here in South Carolina were white. By 1868, 90% of the prisoners here were black. The reason for that transition is because of the criminalization of blackness, the black codes, the vagrancy laws, the pig laws. After the exception clause was put in, they incorporated into a system called convict leasing. And here in South Carolina, they use a lot of that convict leasing. And convict leasing uh, has been described as historians as worse than slavery. And that's saying a lot when you're talking about worse than slavery, because slavery was all the horrors you can imagine yes. combining the one. The difference is with slavery, it was uh, in the best interest of the slavers to keep their enslaved people alive so that they could work longer. With convict leasing, they literally would go and arrest somebody, put them on a plantation or in a coal mine or on a railroad mine to work for free until they died. And when they died, they would go out and get another one wow. to replace it. There's a book by Ed, uh, J. Mancini called One Dies, Get Another, uh, convict leasing in the American South, 1828 to 1866. Uh, and that convict leasing allowed America to be rebuilt. It's what we call the uh, reconstruction period. The reconstruction period was uh, built, with, like South Carolina was rebuilt, in the same way that the country was built. So convict leasing creates the incentive to incarcerate people. And that's how we ended up with a justice system today that uh, will incarcerate the, uh, the guilty and the innocent alike. They target them both alike. Because the main concerns for them is A, it's an economic development program. The more people you have in prison, the more money that you're making, the more jobs you're creating for primarily white people in rural areas like that Arkansas prison that you almost got caught going yeah, into. Yeah, uh, yeah. So they create jobs and economic, uh, economic booms for them. And the other thing is racially motivated. It's a way to control our population. Uh, as you notice, we've been at 13% for 150 years. That's not normal. It's almost as if we're being called to stay at a certain percentage so we never grow any bigger and do what we did during the 16 and 1700s, which is in the vein of Matt Turner and Denmark Vesson to rise up against our oppressors. Yeah, that's powerful. That's powerful. Listen. This is Freedom Lab 2020. Marking my one year of freedom of incarceration. Wrongly convicted 23 years and three months. Almost a quarter century of my life was taken because the underpinning or the underlying situation that caused that in the first place is the 13th Amendment. Max really gave me context. He gives us context. He is not the only one. He is not a sole abolitionist. There are many. Many. Tell us a little bit about that and who they are, because I think when people hear that, they hear it with a negative tone. 
Give us context to that, if you would, my man. Well, well, I'll give you an example. Just in the past couple of weeks, we've officially formed a national organization. It's called the Abolish Slavery National Network. There's representatives across about 14 different states so far and growing. That includes legislators, community leaders, religious leaders, all coming together for the same purpose, to lead and legal slavery, because they all see that as the core issue of this uh, age. It is the most important thing of our generation. Uh, so they believe in uh, the idea that if we can solve this problem, all of the other problems that revolve around it will fall away. Uh, but we cannot keep treating the symptoms. Now, for instance, you know, a few times I heard you say the phrase mass incarceration. Mass incarceration didn't even exist as a term until 2009. Between 2007 and 2009, there were only four mentions of mass incarceration on Twitter. Just four. Not until Michelle Alexander mm -hmm. published her book, Mass Incarceration and uh, the, uh, the Jim Crow and Mass Incarceration. That's when it became popularized, and all of a sudden, people started using it as a description for what was going on. But prior to that, the same thing had been occurring, and no one was calling it mass incarceration. You know what they called it before that? The Fugitive Slave Law. So what did they call it before that? Shadow slavery. So now we call it mass incarceration, which is a misnomer. It, it doesn't actually describe what's occurring. If it were truly mass incarceration, affecting all people equally, there would be five million more white people in prison. But the truth of the matter is that 6% of the population, and that 6% are black men, 6% of the population make up 40% of the prison population. And the reason for that is institutionalized racism, which comes from a system of slavery and human trafficking, where people in power have used this system against us now for 150 years. Okay. Okay. And so you really give it context. Uh, I really, really enjoy being here, uh, meeting you for the first time in person. Max, I knew you while I was still on the inside. You and your wife, Tribal Rain, pushed to help me come home. He was a strong supporter. Um, so to come down here and to uh, meet you guys face-to-face -face after they told me that I would never do that. Yeah. Essentially, they might as well have told me, keep talking to them on the phone because you're never going to see them ever in person. You have life without because we own you. Literally. Literally. And we tell you what to do, where to go, when to keep. In fact, hurry up and get off the phone with them. You remember that a couple of times? Mm -hmm. You only got two minutes or the phone may even hang up on us, but I'm here now. And so I was able to regain my freedom from a wrongful conviction, but you have an intelligent perspective about we are truly not free still. Not free at all. Uh, we think we're free. Frederick Douglass described it as being half free and half slave. Uh, and what he meant by that is you can walk around free right now, but at any moment the potential exists that you could be arrested for no reason at all, potentially killed and probably incarcerated because you've been criminalized. Your life has been criminalized based on the color of your skin. So these, particularly these white cops here in South Carolina, will enact those powers upon you at any given moment. You don't have to have done anything. You could just be driving down the street in a car that might look nicer than they expect you to have, mm -hmm. as you mentioned yourself. Uh, that's, and they'll stop you for that, which could lead to death and incarceration. Uh, so, you know, they exercise these powers on us on a regular basis, particularly here in South Carolina. The southern states have not changed much. 
And as a matter of fact, Frederick Douglass, in that speech where he denounced the emancipation as a suspended squad, said that if we didn't get it under control then, the South would not only rule the uh, southern states, but would rule the entire country. And that's where we're at right now, where southern ideology has become the standard throughout the entire country. And it's why these racist statues are everywhere you look, that they have erected. And they didn't erect them during the period of Reconstruction. They erected them right after Martin Luther King was shot, as if a smack in our face. Like, we done killed your leader, and now we're going to put this statue of E. Lee over here so we can remind you where you're at. And every day that someone would come here to the state capitol for, oh, I think it was over 80 years, they would have to walk under that flag of the Confederate uh, traitors who tried to overthrow the country. And South Carolina's capital proudly displayed it, not just uh, to remember their heritage, but to remind us where we were. And it was a form of terrorism until the day it came down. That's powerful. I remember watching it on TV. I was still on the inside, but I was very cognitive of what was going on on the outside. They paid attention through TV, through books, through magazines, newspapers, and I remember the push. And once they start falling, they started falling. Is that correct? That's right. We set presence. And once we got that flag down, I mean, put it in perspective. We took the flag down from the capital of the South from the home of the Ku Klux Klan, from the first state to secede, and the last one that came back. That flag has been up there as the middle finger in our face for generations, and we finally got that down. And after us, everybody started following us saying, yeah, yeah, let's get yeah, rid of these things, because yeah. they're just terrorism yeah. objects to remind us that we are supposed to be inferior, right. and slaves subject to a white man's authority. That's just something that we had to put it in. Yeah, yeah. Listen, listen, guys. Freedom Lab 2020. August the 1st, we took off from Kansas with the Midwest or with the Miracle of Innocence organization, uh, Executive Director Chris Island. We shot from Kansas over to, or uh, through Missouri, uh, down to uh, Columbia, Missouri, where we stopped and 21 exonerees were invited to an, in, to an NBA virtual game the NBA supports the work of the Innocence Network and trying to exact change when it comes to wrongful convictions. We left there, went to St. Louis. We went to St. Louis, and I introduced you to Barry Robeson, a guy who'd been claiming innocence for many years, told the parole board he was innocent. He was slightly, silently convicted, shot off the prison. He kept telling the parole board that, and every time he did, they set him back five more years until his family said, please, Barry, come home. His kids were little kids, they're grown kids now. He said, please, Daddy, come home. It forced him to go in front of those people's face and tell them that he was responsible so that he can go home. He's now fighting that wrongful conviction from the outside. He started a business, Diversity Cleaning. Ironically, it's a business that cleans up COVID-19, mess and spills when there's a positive case detected anywhere. He now also employs felons who come home so they can have a fresh start and some type of income. We left St. Louis and we slid over to Arkansas. We just mentioned that real quick where we took you to where Laquanda Faye Jacobs spent 21 of her 26 years in prison. 21 of her 26 years in prison. We showed you that ugly mess. It was ugly. It was horrible. It was a little scary. We showed you that we skirted up out that thing because like he just said, you could get pulled over and you're done. We're in the middle of nowhere, and we would have been done. They would have 
doing false charge. I already just did 23 years for a false charge. Right. So I know what that's right. like. Some drugs. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So after we left Arkansas, we did a quick uh, rollover to Memphis, stayed over there, then we shot over to Georgia. We shot over to Georgia, was supposed to connect with the Innocence Project director of Georgia, but at the last minute, out of abundance of cautions, we made some uh, alternate choices. We'll be uh, taking some time to go on a Zoom with them where we can unpack some of the facts as it relates to Georgia's wrongful convictions. I did give you some of the numbers. We rolled in, and the study suggested it was 1,600. 1,600 individuals were believed to be wrongly convicted in the state of Georgia. When I talked to Mike, the director over there, he said, Ricky, it's between 2,000 and 3,000, actually. That was an alarming number, very, very alarming number. Um, after we left Georgia, we slid over here to Sumter, South Carolina. We connected with the abolitionist individuals here, Max Parthas and uh, Tribal Rain. They have erected... Tell them what you guys got going. Well, we have established a nonprofit 501c organization called the Paul Cuffey mm -hmm. Abolitionist Center. It's called that because Tribal Rain is a descendant of the abolitionist Paul Cuffey. And our goals and our mission statement is to provide information, resources, assistance, and understanding on the abolitionist movement from past to present. And we, we say that specifically past to present because we're still here as abolitionists trying to end slavery. Uh, Frederick Douglass is very clear, when he was done, that slavery was not over. And he passed that baton on to the future generations, and we're here now, trying to solve that problem in our life. We may not be able to do that. We accept, accept that. This is a fight that we've been in now for 400 years. It didn't begin with us, and it may not end with us. But we are trying to make sure that the not 18 grandchildren, you know what I mean? None of them are boys. They tell me one in three of my grandchildren, my male grandchildren, are in the end of the prison. That is unacceptable for me. So I'm going to do everything I can to solve the problem in this generation. But just in case we have to care, we're preparing the next generation to continue. Okay. Where can people find out more information right now? Is there a Facebook that they can visit? Yes. Like, follow? You can go to abolitiontoday.org. I'm the co-host along with Yusuf Sal, who we met today of Abolition Today, a weekly program where we spoke, focus specifically on this issue and this issue alone, and how it connects to all of the different aspects of life. We break it down in each segment, uh, piece by piece, so you understand everything that's going on. It is literally a master class on modern-day slavery and abolition. And we include music in it, too. As I told you before, a movement and a movement without some music is poetry. You got to So we bring in the hottest uh, most incredible talented artists you can imagine on that program, and it's a very moving experience to listen to this program. So abolitiontoday.org, uh, go there, uh, check out our archives, and just listen. I'm sure what you hear one, you'll understand you need to listen to more. Yeah, yeah I, I, I do feel that we set out to raise awareness about other people who continue to languish in prison for crimes that, we, that they did not commit. We also set out to highlight organizations, individuals, and law firms who's on the front line trying to do something different with what we see now as our criminal justice system. The Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center is on the front line trying to do, and the Lord of the Sirens, the Sirens of Clarence, because it is an emergency. That's perfect timing. It is an emergency. It is a call to action. Uh, frontliners, 
frontliners trying to fix the underlying condition that caused all the other problems that we see and deal with, including wrongful conviction. So I'm happy that you guys chimed in, that you paid attention, that you continue to pay attention. We promise to bring you more and more, and it will get better and better. We have about 19, 20 more days on the tour. We feel like we're just getting started. We feel like we're just peeling back the layers of onion, so many different layers, and it's really going to get serious. You're really going to be uh, uh, educated, and you're really going to be inspired. Thank you so much, man. You probably want to look at this history. Uh, as, it, it is by, yeah. as it's told by the sculptor here. Go so check it out, y'all. we got the GoPro going, too, so we can show you the documentary later. That's when it all began. And then they traced it through the transatlantic slave trade, uh, how many millions of us were lost uh, during that period. And uh, then towards the chattel slavery period in South Carolina and mm. beyond. The things that we experienced uh, as we came through this country up until the Civil War here, where they finally let African-American soldiers participate in the Civil War. And I remember listening to Frederick Douglass's uh, biography where he explained in his meeting with Lincoln, he asked for the African-American soldiers to get the same pay as the white soldiers to get it. And Lincoln told them they should do it for free because it's about their freedom. Mm. And that's the type of attitude they had towards us. They weren't even willing to pay us as soldiers who literally turned the war. 200,000 of us in that war. And without us, this would be the Confederate States of America, not the United States of America. It would. But we never got any recognition or any compensation for our participation. And then it came up to emancipation. This is uh, supposed to be Mother Harriet Tubman right there. And it shows everybody is so happy uh, because of emancipation. But what it doesn't show is that immediately after this emancipation occurs, convict leasing began, which was the transition from the individual being able to own people to the state being able to own them uh, instead. And that's what we find ourselves now, with the state owning people through the 13th Amendment. And the sad thing about the 13th Amendment is although it dictates that once you've been convicted of a crime, that you can be a slave, no one in it doesn't say you ever get those rights back. So we know that the disenfranchisement, once you get out of prison with a conviction, you're a non-citizen anymore. You're uh, restricted from certain jobs, you're not allowed to vote, you can't get public assistance. Many of the things that any other citizen can get, you can't get anymore. Whether you served your time, paid your dues or not, you still continue to pay for the rest of your life. So that's the first half. And, uh, uh, the way been educated today. More of the history of African Americans here in South Carolina, the 14th Amendment. 40 acres in a mule, mule, the Freedmen Bureau. Uh, I remember the question that was asked by Frederick Douglass when he said, what is the 14th and the 15th Amendment? What does that mean to a person who has been reduced to a state of peonage? Uh, what do these constitutional rights mean to someone who is still being treated like a slave? They don't mean nothing. What does it mean to a prisoner? Or what does the right to vote mean to the 2.2 million people behind bars in prison. It means nothing to them. 
Same thing on the outside. We do six million in a distant franchise. We went through the Jim Crow laws, the black codes, sharecropping, segregation, lynching, Plessy versus Ferguson, uh, the convict labor system, right there, which we just talked about. Uh, and then, you know, we started becoming more and more professional. We got our suits, we got our briefcases, we got our educations, Brown versus Board of Education. As we aspired for what we should have had from the very beginning, equal standing as mm -hmm. citizens of this nation, which we had to fight for every inch of. And this is the part that bothers me. This is the example and the proof, according to the author, of our freedom that we are now We got black judges, black teachers, we got black entertainers, black sport people, black basketball players, black boxers. Why is it sports and entertainment is allegedly the proof of our freedom? If you were to look at the history of white people in America, they wouldn't have somebody becoming a tennis player or a basketball player as the proof of their uh, success in this country. So that bothers me that they would do this. I would agree, yes, as black astronauts and black judges could be an example of that, but I have no idea why they would incorporate sports figures into this as examples of us being free. You may think differently. I don't know. No, I, I, I get it, and I was, I was processing right along with you. That is um, kind of the lore of the totem pole, yeah. so to speak. It's, uh, it's, it's really a space that we always owned anyway, right? <laughs> As far as being uh, that, like that, superior, yeah, yeah, superior, yeah. exactly. We're good for entertainment. Yeah, it's bound. We're good for yeah. entertainment. And that's what, and that's why I call it the 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 lore, the less, the lore, the total fall is, is like we are more than your entertainment. In fact, I used to say, I still say, on this journey that I've been on since I'm home, that I am not your entertainment. I am not. I am not there to change the whole That's thing. It. If I ever come across, if I, I will say something that may make you chuckle, but it's this is not mm -hmm. entertainment. So, uh, and that's Real where life. that comes from. That, that is life. really where that comes from. I despise it. It makes mm -hmm. me frustrated and it irritates me. I don't want to. Boy, you was really good. Like they had a good night. Mm -hmm. I don't want you to have a good night. I don't want you to have a good night. I want you to have a good life. I want you to be inspired. I want you to be moved. We were the equivalent Amen. of their chicken fight. Right. Their dog fight. We, we still gave are. them entertainment, and that was all, they, all that we were good yeah. for. Yeah. Behind bars, they have gladiator fights. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you're aware of that. I am aware. Where people are betting on two black yeah. men, or two men, period, fighting each other, potentially yeah. to the death, mm -hmm. for someone's entertainment behind bars. Yeah. You know, there's some things that we always have to keep in mind. Cannot forget. America has the largest prison population in the history of humanity on planet Earth. It has never existed. Any other civilization that had as many people behind bars or in cages built for human beings as we do right now. And that system has spread globally to the point where the third largest privately owned corporation on the planet is a company called G4S. G4S is a prison company. Uh, they employ more people on three continents than any other co uh, company on Earth. How did we get to the point within 30 years that a company that didn't exist until the Clinton crime bill became one of the largest companies on the planet? It's because our system of slavery has been exported all across the world now. So you can go to a place like uh, Ghana, for instance, 
Their oldest prison is a, I forget the name of it, but it was built to hold 600 people. As we speak right now, there are 6,000 people mm. in this prison built to hold 600. The images that I saw of these black men sitting in a cage with their knees to each other's backs. It's the only way they could fit in there. And if that gruel, if anything at all, there's no health care. Literally, they just stack them in there until they die. Mm -hmm. And they're making money on each and every one of them. So G4S has become one of the largest companies in the entire world. And it's followed by Geo Group, which is, uh, uh, the G4S is a subsidiary of the Geo Group, which is founded right here in America. We create these systems in America, and now we've exported them all across the globe. So just about anywhere you can go, Australia, for example, you would find that Australia has no public prison. Every one of their prisons is run by the GEO Group, a for-profit private company. Mm. And their purpose is not to uh, correct behavior. Their purpose is to pay dividends to their stockholders. And the only way they can do that is by filling those cages with more people. Mm -hmm. I feel like this, a closing thought. I feel like a general practicing doctor, a doctor in general practice. But the situation is so urgent that you need to see a specialist. And so what I wanted to do was to turn that camera on because the situation is so serious I needed you to talk to specialists. Now, I say that wholeheartedly and sincerely. I know who I am. I know that my voice is strong. I know that my voices matter. I know that my intentions are sincere. But in terms, just a general practicing doctor. I know the basics. I understand it. I live the experience. But when a situation is so deep, that doctor is going to send you to a specialist to get that problem fixed. I feel like your voice and other individuals, your wife's voice, your center, the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, and other abolitionists is the specialist in understanding why these symptoms of the bigger problem keep happening in the first place. I look forward to more conversations with you. I definitely look forward to coming back down here. I do hope people go to, tell them where to go to one more time from them, man. Abolitiontoday.org. Abolitiontoday.org. Guys, I appreciate you spending time with me. I'm Ricky Kidd. Freedom Lab 2020 is in effect. Stay tuned, there's more to come. Always appreciate you supporting the platform. Take care and God bless you. Abolition. Abolition. Today. Abolition. Abolition. Slavery is back. In fact, it was never abolished. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolished slavery, except in prison. At the current rate of incarceration, by the year 2010, the majority of all African-American men between 18 and 40 will be in prison. The state as their captor. It's going to take people who are willing to fight, not people who want to negotiate with the enemy. Life.
discontainment Where reform and discipline are labeled enslavement From rites to passage, to stacking the raiment We're sporting the iron bars, just gracing the pavement It's just like cavemen from the pages of myth Cohabitating in darkness while we wallow in filth Generations of jewels will trickle down to a bit And blood stains these prisons like the pyramid glyphs Guilty or innocent, agents of government Treat our hoods like picking ground All sagging uniform and thugs, they represent racial stereotypes when you witness genocide every day, you get the hint that the ghettos are cold like a lab experiment. As young women and men, street hustle before they tend. Graduating from juvenile halls, enough to deliver to the... Today, you just heard our meeting with Ricky Kidd at the African American History History Monument in Columbia, South Carolina, and that was followed by X-Clan featuring Christian Scott with Prison. Yusuf? To the East Blackwards, Max. (laughs) 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 Yeah, 
ex-clan, man. Uh, you know, oh, yeah. I was a big fan back in the day, man. And, you know, Brother Jay, you know, laid down some really good lyrics. You know, slave ways from the whip to the gauge, from streets to cage, we stand judge, cloak and dagger, let 12 heads decide if you keep your street swagger or be mm. between bars as crazy world gets madder. Man, again, yeah. you know, and most people would listen to the song and just be caught up in the beat and not really paying attention to the lyrics. And this, you know, goes across the board. If we talk about Public Enemy and many of the other artists like that, you know, that they're telling you this stuff right in the lyrics because it's known. It's known. This is no secret as to what's going on. Yeah, man, uh, that song as a follow-up was really fitting because um, that's what we're talking about. Absolutely, these prisons are being used as modern-day plantations. Like it's not even figurative. We have literal prisons that were slavery plantations, like uh, Parchman Prison out in Mississippi and Angola mm-hmm. Prison out in Louisiana. They were literally prison of, of slavery plantations. Right. Yeah, it was fitting. And, you know, as as I said earlier, I was very proud uh, to see his transition from a reformist to an abolitionist and fully understanding the bigger picture. Uh, As he pointed out, you know, we focus on core issues. We focus on the problem itself and not the symptoms. But so many people are stuck uh, like the snake, the snake eating its tail focusing on the symptoms and completely ignoring the source of the problems. Yusuf? Absolutely. You know, and that was that was eye-opening because, you know, as we spoke earlier before that portion that you just played, you know, it was it was not that he didn't understand, but he didn't understand the importance of it. Mm-hmm. And as you guys took your tour, you know, you, you could hear the eye-awakening moment he had, and that's what happens to a lot of people. I mean, I recall when I first learned of the significance of it, because anyone that's ever been, you know, incarcerated before or, you know, have a loved one incarcerated, you, you see all of the symptoms that go on, but until you really look at how it is codified in law, then you say, well, wow. You know, and it's something that I'm actually working on behind the scenes. Well, I want to really start questioning, did the, did the North really win the war? <laughs> you know, but that's something for a future date once I finish my research, you know, as you to. You... Sorry? Mm-hmm. Oh, you don't have to question. Frederick Douglass answered that question for us in his denouncement speech. Absolutely. He absolutely mm-hmm. did. He absolutely did. It's something that I want to. You know, I want to lay it out from a scholarly position. You know, if you just come out and say, hey, you know, the North didn't really win the war. You know, people would think you're crazy, just like we're saying, you remember when you and I were in Ohio and we told the director of that center there, you know, that slavery still exists. And, you know, she jokingly said, well, they got people in, you know, in, in shackles and getting whipped somewhere. You know, she just didn't get it. Right. And that was the director, a black woman, 
of the uh, right. museum, African American Museum in Ohio, who had no clue yeah. whatsoever about the Thirteenth Amendment. That blew my mind that we were the first ones right. that had to tell her that it even existed. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I thought it was a profound moment to see him and his fiance Dawn. Shout out to Dawn. Uh, they're expecting a child. Also, congratulations to awesome. them. Awesome. But to see them touch the four stones from the nations of Africa uh, that they came from here to the United States and, and, and in South Carolina, I thought that was a profound moment for, for them and all of us uh, to see them be able to make that physical connection uh, at that moment. And he did speak, uh, ask about the denouncement speech uh, that Frederick Douglass made in 1888. And, and just a heads up, uh, we are in the middle of a project right now where we have, uh, wow, we're up to about 60 volunteers right now uh, who ha- are going to awesome. get together and make a collage of that speech where everybody gets to say a portion of it. And we'll be presenting that in the next few weeks uh, to our viewing and listening audience. Yusuf? Yeah, and that's that's a uh, very exciting venture. I can't wait to hear how it turns out because it's such a dynamic speech and to hear it in our own voices, you know, it's going to be really dynamic. It's going to be very insightful. And I know the way you do your mixes, you know, it's going to be something really great. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking forward to that, to that as well. You know, he, he made a pledge to us while he was there. Uh, and this is how much he really cares. And he said, you know, in Missouri, we don't get any compensation for wrongful convictions. I didn't even get an apology. It just opened the door and let me out. And that was the end of that. Uh, he's, but, you know, in some states you do get compensation. But he said there is a lawsuit that he has, and he expects to win it in the next year against the state. He says, Max, when I get that money in, we're going to make a major donation to the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center. And uh, I, I thought that was that was heartwarming to hear that. Because truth be told, it's brothers like him and sisters like him who have been wrongfully convicted, who have been released and received compensations that would be more than willing, I suspect, to help the type of efforts that we're involved in. Because they don't want to see anybody else uh, have to live through what they live through. Right. Yeah. Inshallah, you know, that happens. God willing, that happens. And even if he doesn't, I mean, it's his willingness to do it. But I just really want to see him get that because he's deserving of that. I mean, 23 years is a very long time. I mean, a day to be in in jail or prison when you're innocent is a very long time. So magnify that over the course of 23 years. I really want to see him become compensated for that. It's a shame that the citizens of the state of Missouri are going to have to put the bill as opposed to those who actually put him there. It's not coming out of their pockets. It's not coming out of their pension funds. So that's the part that bothers me, but I really want the brother to actually be compensated for his loss. So do I, man. Uh, You know, he said that the cost of his incarceration over this 23 years was nearly a half a million dollars. That's what we paid as taxpayers to put this innocent man behind bars for 23 years, nearly $500,000. If he was a man free for 23 years, he would not have made $2,500,000 working a normal job. But we paid that much to keep this innocent man behind bars. Um, He wouldn't have even received that as a 
even if he was receiving welfare or any other form of government assistance. He wouldn't have even received close to that. Not even close to it. Uh, and, you know, the numbers are astounding. We're going to get into the numbers a little bit later. I'm just going to share one right now. He mentioned it. He, he said that, you know, nationwide there's over 115,000 people who are wrongfully convicted and behind bars now. Uh, the average wait, I think you told me earlier, was nine years. Uh, but it can go up to uh, three, four decades before people are finally right. exonerated and set free. Which is one of the reasons why we look at organizations like the Innocent Project as the modern underground railroad conductors. And he also told us that there is now a black version of the Innocent Project uh, where lawyers of color are working to free the innocent. And I think that that type of venture should grow and grow and be a franchise to get these people out. Because we say 115, 120,000 people, but that's what we know of. That's only what we know of. It could easily be double that. Uh, so, you know, you could potentially be talking about uh, 200, 300,000 people who are innocent and behind bars for crimes that they did not commit because they were railroaded by a, a justice system that was built from the ashes of chattel slavery. All right. Well, what we want to do is open up the lines this evening uh, for a brief period, about 15 minutes. Uh, so if you call in, uh, be sure to keep your comments brief. We still have a few things more to do. And we're looking for a call from Brent, uh, Britt Lunsford-Castaneda, who has been uh, a part of our program for the past two weeks now. Uh, this will be his third week where he recorded a speech by uh, Lunsford Lane, who is potentially one of his ancestors. Uh, and that uh, story of Lunsford Lane has been riveting. Uh, we'll talk about that later as well. So if you want to uh, participate, you have a question or comment, uh, call us at 515-605-9814 515-605-9814. Britt, if you're on the line, just raise your hand. I think I see you right there. So I'm just going to go ahead and bring you in. Uh, is this Britt on the line? Love you. Hey, how's it going, Max? <laughs> hey, peace, Britt. Can Welcome you hear me? to Abolition Today. Yes, we can hear you. We can hear you. Uh, welcome to Abolition Today, and thank you for your contribution, brother. We really appreciate what you did. Definitely, yeah, and I'm uh, grateful to be able to participate. Um, I've been on the sidelines seeing y'all with the new abolitionists and, and doing this, so it's um, uh, it's it's forced me to dig into history myself a little bit further, so good stuff. Did you – ever find out whether or not this is one of your ancestors? Not yet. No. Not um, yet. In the, the Ancestry.com thing, um, it goes it goes back to around the time he was born, but I can't, like, that, that particular individual that I was able to find, uh, I can't recall their name right now, but they, um, they weren't in Raleigh at the time. So the the name Lunsford, um, I, I'm just gonna have to keep tracking it down. All right. Well, that sounds like an inspirational journey, man. Um, and uh, I, I'm just curious, how did you feel uh, while you were reviewing, reading, and digesting this story of his life? It's it's really intense. I mean, the the speech is one thing. Um, 
but he's an incredibly humble individual. Um, he does have an autobiography. Uh, so I did go through that today um, and just kind of do a little summary of it. But um, there's just so, there's just so much more to what he went through before he even got to, um, to, to the point to where he was ready to, to buy his family's freedom. So for me, it was, it's one, yeah, it's, it's just intense just because on one hand, I'm just trying to absorb it and, and keep track of what's happening. But, and on the other hand, just, just, just trying to, in my head, keep the conversation straight. You know, we're talking about slave owners. We're talking about people who are slaves. We're talking about a man who not only bought his family's freedom, but he bought his, his own freedom. And, but even before that, I mean, he bought his freedom for a thousand dollars. But before that, he was paying a um, hundred to one hundred twenty dollars a year just to reserve his own mm. time. So he's basically rent- mm. renting his own time for himself. Um, mm. Yeah, Yusuf. Yeah, uh, Britt. Uh, thank you again for you know the readings that you've done on it. And I'm just curious, uh, what led you down this path? How did you get there? I mean, just just from following the the abolitionists, the new abolitionists number one, and then just seeing the 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 offer to to dig through the black abolitionist archive of speeches, um, I clicked through, and I, I think yeah, just I, I, I initially clicked on the L, the L's, and the, there was Lunsford Lane. So again, uh, Lunsford hmm. being part of my family name was that initial connection, and. Um, just in my uh, eagerness to be part of the, this, this project and just to record it and get it submitted, I completely forgot that little detail to, to make that clear that that's, there's that connection there of just the same name, but um, which is strange to me because in to me, in me, it's a, for me, it's a family name is like a, is, it's a surname, but for Lunsford Lane, it's his, it's his name and Lane is his surname, but, I mean, I, I can't even begin to understand the complicated history of, of names. So, um, yeah, I mean, so, so yeah, it's mainly just been following this movement and then, and just trying to figure out how, how I can be involved or, or how I can just put my energy to it. For those that are not aware, we made the call weeks ago asking people to go through the Black Abolitionist archive that we provided for them to uh, look through and find a speech and bring it back to life. You know, some of these speeches, potentially the one you read, have never been heard since the original speaker wrote them down or said them. So we're reclaiming this history and sharing the wealth of wisdom and experience that come from these abolitionists and what they went through to remind us of our roots. You know, these fights didn't begin with us and they don't end with us. So I appreciate you doing that. I got one more comment for you, uh, one more question for you that I'd like to ask. You've been listening to the show uh, uh, that we've had on today, right? You, you heard the uh, encounter that we had with Ricky Kidd? A, a little bit, um, not the whole thing. Oh, okay. So, well, whatever you heard. Uh, but I'm gonna, comments, be, I'm gonna, I'm gonna catch it again. Uh, you could, you can watch the video of it because there is a video that covers yes. that. We only heard the audio, but you can check out the video of us right there at the monument and see the imagery that inspired him so much. So any uh, comments on that uh, before we go to the next segment? 
again, I'm going to catch up with that specific point, but I, I did hear just a little bit of, of what, okay. uh, of what inspired him. And it's been, it's been y'all and it's been just this whole thing. So um, just again, thank y'all for the, the space and the place that, that y'all create. And um, I'm, I've, I've been inspired. And at the end of this week, I'm going to start a stream um, that's going to be six hours a day on Twitch. Uh, and I can put those in the comments information for that, but it's just uh, focused on abolition. It's called the global abolition station and freedom mm. mind tour. Um, and so uh, we're going to be mixing a little bit of information, obviously starting off with George Jackson on the August 21st uh, for that day, but mixing information and, and entertainment. So, um, and, and I'll be uh, playing some abolition today post uh, broadcast as well. So again, thank well, y'all for again, making the space. And, and again, like I said, I've been inspired to do the same. So. Uh, much appreciated, Brother Britt. Indeed, man. Uh, we'll be playing the final segment of his speech tonight, where Britt Castaneda, Lunsford Castaneda, reads Lunsford Lane's story. Uh, and it, the final part of it is, is very powerful. Make sure you stay till the very end of this program so you can hear that. All right, Brother Britt, we look forward to hearing more from you, and we're looking forward to your global abolition statement. Uh, provide us with the link so we can share them with our listeners and supporters. And Absolutely. thank you for the support you've shown over the years for us and the abolitionist movement as a whole. Peace and God bless, brother. Yeah, much gratitude. Peace. All right. That was uh, Britt Castaneda, and uh, as I said, you'll hear more from him tonight. Uh, and, uh, you know, follow us on our social media pages. We give opportunities like this for people to participate and to reclaim history and bring it back to life. And if you want to be a part of that, all you got to do is just go ahead and follow us on our social media pages where we let you know when these opportunities are available. Yusuf? And this is just further proof as how the abolitionist movement is growing, you know, where we see People are getting the information, and then they're going into other lanes because we have no presence on Twitch, and now he's getting ready to put a six-hour program on Twitch. So that's just another avenue for us to spread the message even further. And Twitch connects to the younger generation, so the younger generation will be coming up with being taught from younger ages about this as opposed to going through 30, 40, 50 years of life of indoctrination of the 13th Amendment lie, when they're going to be, you know, young teens, tweens, and early 20s learning about this and growing up with that information. Yes. And it's a shame, really, that they have to learn this through uh, media platforms provided by people like us rather than in school. In school, they teach you something completely different, which is literally, as you just said, a lie that the 13th right. Amendment abolished slavery and that all the slaves were freed and that now we are post-slavery and slavery no longer exists and Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. These are all just propaganda that never really happened in the way that they said. Um, what we're going to do next is we want to share some data with you in regards to wrongful convictions. And some of these numbers are mind-blowing. Uh, I'll start out uh, with the first one, which is of the 2.2 million people in prisons, 
studies show that at least, at least 5% are innocent. And as I mentioned earlier, that's over 115, 120,000 people. What would we do? What would we do to get 120,000 people who are innocent out of these hell holes that we've created? Yusuf? You know, that's tremendous, Max. You know, as of February 6, 2020, the National Registry of Exonerations indicates that 2,658 known exonerations in the United States since 1989, more than 23,770 years stolen from the innocent. And one thing we want to look into is the leading causes of wrongfully convicted. They're listed as official misconduct, false confessions, witness misidentification, misleading or false forensic evidence, and perjury. This is information that's put out by Edelman and Edelman attorneys and counselors at law that they list in there, and they give a brief summary of what each one of those five entail. You know, just to, to uh, add a little bit more, I'm so inspired and, and happy and proud to be able to provide a voice for those who don't have a voice, like uh, the wrongfully convicted and those who are still behind bars. And that's something that we do here all the time is to keep that connection and give those people their, the, the, the voices that they deserve to have in this national conversation. So the next uh, piece of data is this, and this is, again, it's mind-blowing. African-American men are only 4% of the American population, but a majority of innocent defendants were wrongfully convicted of crimes and later exonerated. They constitute 47% of over 2,600 exonerations listed in the National Registry of Exoneration. 4% of the population represents 50% 50% of the exonerations. That is just mind-blowing. Af- you know, African-American prisoners who were convicted of murder are about 50% more likely to be innocent than other convicted murderers. Part of that disparity is tied to the race of the victim. African-Americans in prison for murder are more likely to be innocent if they were convicted of killing white victims. Only about 15% of murders by African-Americans have white victims, but 31% of innocent African-American murder exonerees were convicted of killing white people. That's astonishing. Yeah, it's crazy, man. These are are crimes against humanity, and here's the data for you right there showing that the American government is – uh, guilty of crimes against humanity, which has been ongoing now for 400 years. Well, the next piece of data is that the convictions that led to murder exonerations with black defendants were 22% more likely to include misconduct by police officers than those with white defendants. In addition, on average, black murder exonerees spent three years longer in prison before released than white murder exonerees. And the 168 who were sentenced to death spent four years longer on death row. <laughs> they get us at every single angle, man. The, the, the discrimination doesn't stop once you go behind bars. It continues even worse there. Yusuf? Right. 
and many of the convictions of African-American murder exonerees were affected by a wide range of types of racial discrimination from unconscious bias and institutional discrimination to explicit racism. And one other thing that I'd like to point out, this, this uh, National Registry of Exonerations has so much information. You know, we have a link, but you can actually go to all the other stuff that's available on the website. They break down the percentage of exonerations by contributing factor, like mis mistaken witness ID, perjury, false confession, and they give you all the numbers. All the numbers are right there, so where you can see that how how big of an effect it is across the uh, across the board. And then there's also another portion where they talk about why so few misdemeanor exonerations are even reported. Because even in all, all the numbers we just mentioned, they're only talking about felonies. That's not even talking about the large numbers of people that are that uh, have misdemeanor charges and. You know, a lot of times they don't even take up those cases because so much time has been given to those that are, you know, convicted of felony charges that they don't even have the time to deal with the misdemeanors because by the time it would even, you know, process through the court, the person is already home, you know, but they have very large numbers there. So that's something that, you know, people should also look at that link. It's also part of the same link within the National Registry of Exonerations, Max. Man, in 20 years, just two decades, we have stolen 24,000 years from people's lives in America, uh, the vast majority of them being people of African descent, descendant of slaves. And that is shameful. It's, it's beyond shameful. So uh, I just want to conclude this portion of our, our program with a thank you to Ricky Kidd for stopping through here and shining a light on the abolitionist movement in the way that he did. And I look forward to hearing more from this fellow abolitionist over the years to come as he fights to gain the freedom of those who have been wrongfully convicted in this American system of legal slavery. Yusuf? Yes, definitely thank you to Ricky, you know, and for him even bringing this information onto his platform, you know, because as I just mentioned earlier when we were dealing with Brick, you know, this is going beyond our platform. It's rising up on other platforms as well to show just the level of importance it is through this system of injustice that we're witnessing on a daily basis. Now, Max, before we go on, I just wanted to mention a couple of articles. I'm not going to go in detail with them, but we want to okay. show how how old this, this situation when it when dealing with exonerations. You know, there's an article that mentions Alabama pardons Scottsboro boys after 82 years. And for those who aren't familiar, that was the nine black teenagers that were charged with raping two white women back in 1931. It took them 82 years for them to even be exonerated. We know the well-known case of George Stenny Jr., the young 14-year-old that was charged with the rape and murder. It took, the article says it took 10 minutes to convict 14-year-old George Stenny Jr. It took 70 years after his execution to exonerate him. The article will be up for those to 
who are interested in reading about that. Then there's another article put out by the Innocence Project where it mentions from Emmett Till to Purvis Payne, black men in America are still killed for crimes they didn't commit. Hmm. And one other portion. You give me one second. Just one thing that we don't really even consider in these numbers because we have these numbers because this is what's been reported. But we know the history of lynching in America. And I've actually will put up the article of the history of lynchings in the United States. And we know that many lynchings were the result of the mob mentality convicting people before they even got to go to court. And there's no recordings of those. You know, the NAACP says between 1882 and 1968, 4,743 lynchings occurred in the United States. So how many of them were innocent of their charges? We'll never know. They never got the opportunity to be exonerated. So that's all I wanted to say on that, Max. One thing I've learned over these decades of being an abolitionist is that however bad things are reported, uh, to us, and we read about them, they're usually 10 times worse than we thought. So just whatever you hear, just multiply times 10, and that's closer to the truth than what you actually hear. Uh, well, uh, we've still got a couple of uh, segments left, and I want to take an opportunity to thank our sponsors and introduce our newest sponsor, uh, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, of course, the I Am We Prison Advocacy Network, same Urge, Quakers Uplifting Racial Justice, the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, Prismatic Dreams, Punks for Progress, and our newest syndication partners, the Black Talk Radio Network. Me, uh, for those that know my history, I spent seven years as a, uh, uh, a co-host on the program New Abolitionist Radio before I branched out into our own program here at Abolition Today, and I'm happy to hear that they are on board as uh, one of our syndication partners. So thank you to the Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, we're coming up to the uh, last couple segments. We will usually provide you with a quote uh, to think about and remember until next week. So we're going to go into that segment now. Uh, Yusuf? Sure. My uh, closing quote comes by way of 2019 exoneree by the Bronx Attorney's Conviction Integrity Unit from the 1991 murder conviction where detectives from the 47th Precinct in the Bronx had coerced, uh, I'm sorry, the information got transferred wrong, had coerced Hugh Burton into falsely confessing to the murder of his mother, Keziah Burton, when he was just 16 years old. His quote is, my advice to other innocent people in prison is don't stop. Don't give up. Continue to fight. Don't lay down. The, mom- the moment you lay down, that's when it's over. Hugh hmm. Burton, 2019. Awesome. And uh, I'll conclude with this one from Ernestine Rose in A History of Women's Suffrage, 1861 to 1876. She said, if you allow one single germ 
one single seed of slavery to remain in the soil of America, that germ will spring up, that noxious weed will thrive, and again stifle the growth, wither the leaves, blast the flowers, and poison the fair fruits of freedom. And the 13th Amendment was that seed of slavery, which has now blossomed into a poisonous forest of horrors that is seen worldwide. Um, I just want to say thank you for listening today to the Exoneration Nation featuring Ricky Kidd and uh, absorbing this information along with us so that when you walk away from this program today, uh, you will, as I have mentioned in our discussion with Ricky, be moved. Uh, and hopefully you share this information and the program. So thank you for being here and participating and listening with us to this. Uh, once again, I'm Max Parthas. Uh, please consider making a donation to the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center so we can go ahead and get that recording equipment uh, to further advance our efforts here as abolitionists in the United States. Uh, peace. And God bless to everybody. Yusuf. And that brings us to our Bridging the Gap segment from the Ab- Black Abolitionist Archives, a speech by abolitionist Lunsford Lane, read by Britt Lunsford Castaneda. And this is part three of three. In part two, Lunsford Lane was literally kidnapped from jail and then tarred and feathered for daring to speak of slavery abolition. In this final segment, He is reunited with his family in a daring escape to freedom. This segment will be paired with singer Seal performing the classic song, People Get Ready. We'll be back August 23rd with guest Dennis Febo from Amend the 13th, New Jersey, and Kamal Waset, lead organizer of the Abolish Slavery National Network, which officially launches August 28, 2020. Remember to subscribe to our Abolition Today YouTube page, for all the news, information, and music you hear on the program. Also, recall, remember that Abolition Today is available to be listened to on Spotify, on iTunes, on Stitcher, and also on CastBox. And it may be on a few others that we're unaware of. Until next week, think about Abolition Today. Peace and blessings be upon you all. Abolition, Abolition. In his reference to the tar and feathering being the equipment of an anti-slavery lecturer, I never professed that my heart was full of abolition, but I now stand in this platform and say that if any man ought to be an anti-slavery lecturer, Lunsford Lane is the man. I was set at liberty by the people who said, Now we have done what we wish to do. Now go home and be not afraid. You may do what business you please, and you shall not be hurt. We merely wished to let the aristocracy know that they should not have their own way. I went home, and there was confusion and almost death. My family and wife were in mourning and sackcloth, expecting to hear I was hung. When I entered the house, though I was so strangely dressed, my wife embraced me with cheerfulness and commenced taking off my coat of tar and feathers. She had scarcely commenced when the house was darkened by those who put it on. They asked me when I expected to leave town. Tomorrow, I replied. I suppose you have business to do, they remarked. If so, go on and do it, and don't feel embarrassed. A guard was stationed around the house to defend me, but I dared not trust myself to sleep in the house, or hardly out of it. I slept at the house of Mr. Smith, 
the man of whom I bought my family. The next morning I went to see Mrs. Hayward, the owner of my mother. To my great joy, she told me she concluded to let my mother go free, as I was her only child, and it would almost kill her to part with me. She said, if I ever felt able to pay her $200, I might do it. My friends, Mr. Boylan and Mr. Manley, then assisted me to get money for my certificates of deposits. I paid it over to Mr. Smith and took his bill of sale. It was then near 12 o'clock, and there was a great crowd gathered in the public streets. There was not so great a crowd when Lafayette went through Raleigh. From the free remarks that were made as they moved toward the depot, Mr. Loring judged that it was not safe for me to go there. I was therefore put in a carriage and taken by a roundabout way to a spot on the railroad about a mile and a half distant. My family were put aboard at the usual place, and the crowd were looking for me anxiously, but knew not where I was. An arrangement was made with the conductor to stop when I gave him the signal. He did so, and I jumped aboard. This was Tuesday morning, and I stopped not till on Thursday morning I stepped my foot on the free land of Philadelphia. It was on the 26th of April, about 9 o'clock. I had the happiness to imagine I heard the shackles fall from the, these dearer to me than life. The bill of sale was then read to the meeting by Mr. Spear. It was like a bill for selling any other property. It stated that Mr. Smith sold to Lunsford Lane a dark mulatto woman and mentioned the child by name. One was named Alex in the bill. I named him Alexander, said Lane quickly. I want all that belonged to us. As the children were mentioned one after another, they rose or were raised up before the meeting, exhibiting the bright countenances of young immortals, such as the people of this nation buy and sell, as they do swine. Now, said he, as he concluded his story, I have not a dollar in my pocket, yet I think there is not one here who feels richer or happier than I do. That was a speech by Lunsford Lane that was published in the Western Citizen in 1842. This is a speech from the Black Abolitionist Archives. Thank you. Oh, oh yeah.